Recently, James has kicked off a series of copy and a case note videos. There, James briefly reflects on recent legal decisions over a piccolo latte, sharing his knowledge in a way that is both approachable and rigorous. I'll now hand you over to James to commence today's presentation. Thanks for joining us today, James. Uh, Alison, thank you kindly for having me and for that uh, generous introduction. Um, yes, normally I would have a small coffee in front of me when talking law, but I'll make do with a bottle of water this morning. Um, thanks to everyone for coming along to this webinar. Um, locked and loaded, we're talking about uh, privacy risks for you and your clients, and we're going to get into some nuts and bolts on how to manage them. So what are we going to discuss today? Essentially, we're going to cover these four areas. The first area is going to be difficult and knotty, and because I drafted the paper, I'm also allowed to call it boring, so I'm going to ask you to uh, bear with me as we work through the APP regime and data breaches. That's essentially going to be the background or backbone of our discussion. It's the legal landscape. Then we're going to move on to the privacy regime uh, in practice. So how do things actually look when the rubber hits the road? if we are taking, we'll take both a macro sort of market scale look and we'll take a micro look at some examples as well. Then we're going to uh, get practical. We're going to talk about how you and your clients are going to reduce the likelihood of data breaches. And then we're going to ask, ourself, uh, ask ourselves what happens if disaster strikes. So if we have a breach or if one of our clients has a breach, what are we going to do about that? For a couple of preliminary thoughts, I just wanted to quickly hold your hand through the Privacy Act. Now, the Privacy Act is the relevant uh, piece of legislation for us, and it was first passed in 1988. Um, that was when the internet was years from relevance, uh, relevance and the web itself didn't even exist. Uh, and I suspect the word cyberspace would have felt like science fiction. So updates and revisions and, um, and amendments to this legislation, you could pretty much say they're inevitable. Um, originally, the Act applied to the government sector. In 2000, there was some expansion to include some private sector organisations. But really relevant for us today is the 2014 amendment which brought in the APPs, the Australian Privacy Principles, and they're the amendments that gave rise to a lot of uh, hand-wringing about privacy policies a few years ago that some of you might have experienced. And then in 2018, there's the further amendment that we're really going to come to grips with today, that's the notifiable data breach regime. So let's get into the really hard bit, the crunchy nuts and bolts bit. And um, once we're through that, I promise we'll all feel a lot better. But let's let's dive into the deep dive into the deep end. So the first thing we're going to discuss are what are APP entities. Now, as I say, today's discussion is going to be a practical one. But what I say is that a review of this legislative backbone, we, we need to understand the law we're dealing with um, to better understand the practical approaches we're going to be taking. So the APP regime applies to what are APP entities. So we then ask, well, what's an APP entity? An APP entity is either an agency, which is essentially a government instrumentality, or an organisation. Great, <laughs> another definition. So what's an organisation? Well, we turn to section 6C of the Privacy Act for that, and we find that an organisation is an individual, a body corporate, a partnership, any other unincorporated association or trust, and I'll just linger on that trust point for a moment and come back to it, that is not a small business operator. So I might just unpack that for a moment. An individual, body corporate, partnership or other unincorporated association, yes, there are various types of legal entities, or a trust, which as you know is not in and of itself a legal entity, even though it might have an ABN, um, but a, a trust for the purposes of the APP regime can be an APP entity. That's not the trustee, that is the trust itself. And in order for in order for any of those um, entities or in the case of trust relationships 
to be APP entities, they must not be small business operators. We're going to review this, I promise things are sounding fiddly but we'll get there. So what's a small business operator? A small business operator is, in short, an entity that earned less than $3 million in the previous financial year. But broad exceptions apply to that definition, right? So an entity is not a small business operator if it provides a health service or holds health information or if it discloses personal information for a benefit. Um, and so we then turn to another definition. We say, all right, well, if an organisation is an individual trust partnership, etc., that is not a small business and a small business earns less than $3 million, but you're not a small business if you provide a health service or disclose personal information, then what's personal information? Well, uh, personal information is uh, information about an identified individual or an individual who's reasonably identifiable, regardless of whether it's true or not, and regardless of whether the information or opinion is reduced to material form or not. So if I can linger on that for a moment. Personal information, you meet the definition if the information is true or not. You meet, the information, you meet the definition if the information is in material form or not. And it must be about an identified individual. I know this is fiddly, so I'm going to go through it again. And I'm sorry if... If you're super smart and you're right on it, I'm sorry to linger on it. So we're talking about the APP regime. The APP regime applies to APP entities. What are APP entities? They are agencies, which is a government body, or organisations. Great. So what is an organisation? It's an individual body, corporate partnership, unincorporated association or trust that is not a small business operator. So what is a small business operator? It earns less than $3 million in the previous financial year but you don't get that exception if you provide a health service or if you disclose personal information. And as you just heard from me, the definition of personal information is really broad. It's information about an individual, whether true or not, and whether in material form or not. So what I say is that the breadth of the personal information definition means that while some entities will be accepted from the small business operator status, there are many who will be APP entities. Hopefully that's clear as mud. <laughs> um, as we now discuss how, how broad personal information might be. And uh, the Grubb decision about journalist Ben Grubb um, illustrates how broad personal information can be. Now, in short, um, uh, ben Grubb made a request to Telstra for his personal information. So I withdraw that. He made a request for his metadata. And if you don't know what metadata is, metadata is information about other information. So Mr. Grubb requested the metadata relating to his Telstra mobile phone, about, phone account. So that metadata was um, the time of calls, the length of time of calls, the mobile phone towers used and that sort of thing. And he said, this metadata is about me, therefore it is my personal information, therefore Telstra should give it to me. And the information commissioner, when um, the matter was first heard said, yes, that's right, the metadata is personal information and so you should give it up. Uh, but the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the Federal Court rolled the Commissioner on that point. And what we can take from those appeals is that the IP address and the length of time of call and the mobile phone towers and this sort of stuff um, was information about the mobile phone. It was not information in this case based on these facts about Mr. Grubb. So what I'd like you to take from that is that even though we've spoken about how broad the definition of personal information is, it does not include, to an extent, metadata. So what do APP entities have to do? In short, they must comply with 
the APPs. Now, a definition of what the APPs are falls outside the scope of our discussion today, but essentially, uh, if you form the view that you are an APP entity, or that one or some or all of your clients are, um, those parties must read the APPs and understand them. And what else do APP entities have to do? They have to comply with the notifiable data breach regime, which we'll come to in a moment because I just want to review what we've done because this is the hard bit I was talking about and I want to make sure we all understand before we move on. APP regime applies to APP entities. Government bodies are APP entities. Organisations are APP entities. An entity is an organisation if it is not a small business operator. A small business operator did three million in revenue the previous year or less. Um, and the other exceptions are that it provides, sorry, an exception to that definition is the provision of a health service or the disclosure of personal information, which we know is broad. And so what I say is, due to the breadth of that definition, many organisations are APP entities, which leads us to our question, well, what do they have to do? Got to comply with the APPs and they must comply with the notifiable data breach regime, which is what we're going to crunch through in part today. So what is a data breach? Well, a data breach occurs when personal information, and we know how broad that expression is, having discussed it earlier, is either lost or subjected to unauthorised modification, disclosure, or some other misuse or interference. Fine. So what is an eligible data breach? And it is this eligible data breach that gives rise to some scary consequences. Um, an eligible data breach is a data breach that is likely to result in serious harm to any of the individuals the information relates to. So what has to happen? The questions that an APP entity must ask itself in relation to this regime are, firstly, was there a data breach? Um, did someone leave their briefcase on the train? Uh, <laughs> was the um, IT system hacked? Um, did that email go to the wrong recipient? Was there a data breach? We then turn to question two. Is serious harm likely to arise from that data breach? Well, um, what's serious harm? Um, we might dive into the complexity and difficulty with that a little later. Um, how likely is it? Well, that's another issue for us to dive into as well. Uh, and then the third question the APP entity must ask is, has it been unable to prevent the harm by remedial action? So that's why it's so important to be practical in this space, because maybe there was a data breach, tick for number one. Maybe there was serious harm likely to arise from it, tick for number two. But if the APP entity can prevent the harm with remedial action, then that's fine and you're away. So the APP entity must conduct an assessment of whether these criteria are met. Um, there are resources to assist in this from the Commissioner, but we've got no binding decisions to guide us. Um, but in short, the APP entities must be nimble and prepared to comply in the case of a data breach. And we've just completed the first um, hard, difficult, crunchy, technical part of the talk. So I'll invite you to pat yourself on the back and breathe a sigh of relief as we move into uh, a section we've called Privacy in Practice. Now we're going to take a look at two different angles on privacy and practice. We're going to take a macro view of some stats relating to data breaches, and then we're going to take a micro view. We're going to dive into some real examples of actual breaches of the APPs. And hopefully the combination of this macro-micro approach will assist. So what's the macro? Right. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, the OAIC, releases quarterly reports on notifiable data breaches. And if you're a data type person, you might be interested in popping over to the website and reading um, some of the reports that are published there. The most recent 
uh, report published is the one for the quarter concluded 31 March 2019. And in respect of that quarter, there were 215 notifications of eligible data breaches. And where did they come from? 35% from human error. So when we get to the practical <laughs> steps, um, there's some low-hanging fruit there for, um, for goofs made by, um, made by humans. 61% arose from external malice, criminal attacks, hacking, etc., and 4% from system faults. Now, I'm afraid that's it for the macro um, because we don't have any decisions on the NDBs. But um, if I can just drag you back to that data released by the Information Commissioner, and with respect, um, I consider it to be useful. And with respect, I suspect there might be some value there for you if you were inclined to have a bit of a sniff over the material available that the commissioners made available online there. So um, we now turn to the micro and we turn to some um, recorded decisions of the commissioner. Now, as I've just alluded to, we don't have any decisions about the NDB regime. And um, that means that we are forced to predict the future based on the past. So uh, we can only predict how the Commissioner is going to deal with um, NDB breaches in any settled um, complaint, I say, or one of, one of the ways we can, we can form a view is to review historical decisions about APP breaches um, and a review of those is what we're going to turn our mind to. So there are a few different decisions we'll look at. Um, one of them is KB and Vader. Now in short, we've got Vader, who uh, is a credit reporting agency who incorrectly records a judgment debt in KB's name, and that restricts KB's ability to access credit to manage his business. Now that was in June 2014. Flash forward three months to September 2014, Vader's notified um, and notifies the lenders, corrects the error. Right. Then we flash forward to July 2015 when KB makes a complaint to the Commissioner. Then we flash forward to November 2016 when Vader is ordered to pay 10 grand for non-economic loss to reimburse 5 grand worth of costs to apologise in writing and review its procedures as well as reporting to the Commissioner. So we have an APP breach affecting the management of a business uh, we have an order for $10,000 for the loss and reimbursement of five, or well, nearly six grand. So we now turn to IV and IW, another decision that might assist us. Um, IV is a patient of IWs, and IW is a GP. Now IV and IW were both of the same religion until IV renounced his faith. IV discussed his lap, the lapsing of his faith by email with IW and a lot of others. And IW responds to um, some of the positions put forward by IV by saying, you'll recall my management of your delusional depression. Now, uh, IV had not suffered delusional depression, nor had IW treated him for it. Uh, so IV makes a complaint to the Information Commissioner. And IW tries to say, well, IV consented to that disclosure, um, so that's fine and permitted. But uh, that argument failed, and IW was ordered to pay $10,000 in compensation. Now, just by way of sidebar, uh, noting that what IW said about delusional depression was untrue, and noting that it was shared with a number of other people, it would seem to any onlooker that a cause of action in defamation may well be open and available to IV. And I'll just make that comment now as something that, um, that we might turn to a little later. So we now turn to another decision. This is OJ and DHA. Now, OJ is a person of interest to the public due to criminal conduct involving children. Uh, and in 2014, there are two disclosures of OJ's personal information made by DHA. The first disclosure was in response to a subpoena. 
OJ complained and the commissioner said, go away. <laughs> um, if you disclose things pursuant to a subpoena, that's not a breach of the APPs. The second complaint was in response to an current affair inquiry. Um, now, after the commissioner considered the minister's duties pursuant to the Public Service Act um, and the sort of things that a minister must do, such as account to the public, including inquiries from the minister, sorry, including inquiries from the media, uh, the Commissioner also dismissed that complaint. Uh, PA and DVA, uh, we've got DVA disclosing PAs and others' personal information um, to conduct a study on former military combatants. DVA argues that the disclosure was made in the course of medical research and so was exempt from the APPs and the complaint was dismissed. Now. I'd like to make a note about this decision. The amount claimed was for $12,000 in non-economic loss and $7,000 in aggravated damages. That's $19,000. The findings handed down by the commissioner were over 100, and I say this respectively, uh, respectfully, carefully reasoned and well thought out paragraphs. Now. It is difficult to believe, and this is just my personal view, that a matter that led to a potentially contested hearing with findings made over so many carefully crafted paragraphs could have cost on both sides anything less than almost 10 times the amount claimed. And so there's a real proportionality question involved with some of these decisions that come before the Commissioner. Um, Another example, we've got CBUS disclosing PBs and others' personal information to a third party. That's found to be a breach, but there's no compensation ordered, just an apology required to be made. Um, lots of other examples here uh, that are not on the slides, but I might just bring a couple to your attention. Um, we've got uh, the case of D and Wentworthville Leagues Club, where the commissioner awarded $7,500 for humiliation and serious anxiety, panic attacks and physical symptoms caused by the respondent's disclosure of Dee's former gambling habits. Now $7,500 for causing an outcome like that is an amount that um, you might like to reflect upon the proportionality of. I invite you to do so. And then we turn to DK and Telstra Corporation Limited now, this is an award of $15,000 to DK when DK was forced to move interstate because of his legitimate fears for his personal safety after Telstra published his personal information in the White Pages directory and online. Um, now, I think, respectfully, there's another proportionality question um, for you, perhaps, and your clients to ask themselves if they are contemplating this area. So what themes can we take from these micro decisions that we've got from the APP? Now, I say all of this with respect, um, but I say that the following themes emerge from these decisions. Um, the quantum of compensation is reasonably small, um, particularly, you might say, in the context of some of the damage that might have been suffered. Um, the risk of cost orders is not very high, so that allows um, a potentially self-represented self litigant or a poorly funded litigant to be able to drag um, another party um, into legal proceedings without a big threat of a costs order looming if they lose. Um, respectfully, there's often a lack of speed to some of these things. So a complaint might have been made some time ago and it might take some time for the parties to get the matter before the Commissioner um, in order to enable the Commissioner to hand down findings. Particularly relevant, and I might ask you to reflect on this one, is that the complaints that arise in some of these matters could quite obviously found other causes of action that I suspect would have reasonable prospects of success. So if we think of IV and IW, this is our, um, our 
um, lapsed religious person dealing with his GP in the emails where the GP said, you'll recall my treatment of your delusional depression. If we think of that, well, um, it would strike me, especially considering the delusional depression is not true, that there may be prospects of a defamation claim getting up on those facts and the damages that would arise from that defamation claim would, I humbly submit, dwarf uh, anything that was ordered by the Commissioner in these proceedings. And I do want to draw your attention to the reputational risk. So some of you might act for not-for-profits, some of you might act for other institutions where trust is extremely important, and despite what we've said about costs orders and despite what we've said about um, uh, occasionally a lack of promptness, the risk to your client of having um, her, his, its or their name dragged through the mud for potentially goofing up on a privacy matter is not to be ignored. And I say it is one of the stronger reasons for reflecting on why compliance is important. And can I just remind you of this, that um, at the time of knocking this together, um, there were no decisions in relation to the NDB regime. So all of those comments I made were about breaches of the APPs, the Australian Privacy Principles, and we don't have any decisions handed down on notifiable data breaches yet. But what I say is that review we've just conducted, it does inform us about APPs, but I also say it informs us about um, the possible approach the Commissioner might take to NDB complaints in future. So, can I just recap what we've discussed? We started off discussing the real hard nuts and bolts of what the APP regime was, who it applied to. Uh, we decided whether or not we were APP entities uh, by having a think about whether we were small business operators and if we did earn less than three million, whether we actually um, disclosed personal information, meaning that um, we would get outside of that exclusion and then we thought about how broad the definition of personal information was. Then we talked about the NDB regime and what, uh, what we had to do if there was a data breach and how to try to avoid it becoming an eligible data breach. Then we jumped to the macro and micro chat where we had a look at some macro numbers for NDBs and we saw that uh, there were more than 200 and that some of them were the result of external malice and some of them were the result of human error, goofs. Uh, then we look at some micro examples and we saw those themes that emerged that we just discussed of the, um, uh, the low damages quantum and the low cost risk and the fact that complaints were sometimes dismissed. So now we are getting into the practicality, the real nuts and bolts. How are you and your clients going to approach this regime? What are you going to do about it? Well. First step um, is to think about a data breach. So remember that a data breach is what happens when personal information, and we know how broad personal information is, is lost or subjected to unauthorised access. It's misused, interfered with. And this means that regular data breaches are likely. People are going to lose their phones. Um, people are going to chat about work in the lift. Emails are going to be sent to the wrong addresses, and perhaps that's one that might send a shiver down your spine if you think of how easy it is to send an email to the wrong recipient, um, that, I'm sorry to say, is a data breach. Uh, and it's the sort of goof that uh, we all commit. And it's the sort of goof that leads me to say, um, for you and your clients, data breaches are more or less inevitable. So this leads us to two questions. Um, how are we going to minimize data breaches? Firstly, and then secondly, if they do occur, how do we reduce the likelihood they become eligible? So let's focus on that first point. Let's minimise our data breaches. Because if we do that, we're necessarily, by reducing data breaches, we're reducing the likelihood of an eligible data breach. Now, there are a number of methods. Uh, to reduce the likelihood of um, what I've called here the, um, the garden variety data breach. And they include um, that most effective strategy of common sense. Uh, they include a privacy audit. 
They include um, adherence to the APPs. What you'll actually find, and what I hope you'll accept from my review coming up, is that if you or your client as an APP entity are complying with the APPs, and I'll, I'll point you to the relevant APPs, then that very compliance manages and potentially manages to zero the risk of a data breach occurring. And you might engage a third party in certain circumstances with expertise and privacy, and we'll, and we'll have a look at that as well. So let's start with common sense. Um, can I refresh your memory on the macro data we looked at? Do you remember how we saw the uh, significant minority? In fact, was it significant minority? I've just, maybe I've got those two numbers confused. Sorry. Yes, 35% from human error, 61% from malice. So more than a third of uh, the data, with the eligible data breaches, when we say eligible, remember we're talking about data breaches that are likely to cause serious harm. More than a third of those um, came from goofs. And so we want to apply some common sense to bring those human errors, bring those goofs to a minimum. So let's have a think about it. Um, what practical things are we going to do? Here are some examples, and it's more or less an unlimited list of, uh, because we're talking about how can humans stuff up, and that, that list is very long indeed. Uh, but here are some suggestions that, I, that I've come up with, and, and, and I, I should say as follows a, a review of some other um, material online as well, um, particularly that the commissioner makes available on that website. But we want to ensure that our IT systems are in place, uh, and I'll bring, bring our own device practices, these sort of um, practices that allow tech to be used in a, um, insecure is the wrong word, but a more open and available kind of way. We want to make sure that all of these are in place. And <laughs> the really short one is we want everyone looking after their briefcase, looking after their smartphone, their compendium, their iPad, their little black book. Let's make sure these are not getting left on trains, left in cafes left open uh, as everyone walks by. Let's not use passwords like admin, guest, password, let QWERTY, let me in. This sort of stuff is uh, not ideal. We want to avoid, and this is sometimes um, a trap that um, unsophisticated small businesses fall into, and I use the word unsophisticated and small um, with no negative connotation, merely descriptively, um, but there are often numerous users of the same software license. And depending on the type of software and depending on the use being made of it, there are risks that can arise from that. Uh, then we've got that security door out the back. You know, the one out the back of your office that won't shut? Yes, that, that can give rise to a privacy, uh, uh, to a data breach as well. Uh, we really want to minimise the goof that, that, that you and I make every day of sending emails to the wrong recipient. We want to avoid reviewing documents containing personal information in public. Um, doing this stuff on a bus in a cafe, I know we're all mobile, I know we're all working flexibly and all these sort of things, but there needs to be a strategic, considered approach uh, brought to bear on this stuff. And um, this is, final point, essentially a repetition of the first point. We need to manage the use of cloud computing resources and things like this. So, Remember I said there were four things we could do to reduce the likelihood of a data breach? That's the common sense point. We now turn to a privacy audit. So I think what that is is fairly obvious from the title. It's taking a critical look at the way an APP entity handles its personal information and using the data gathered from that critical look, thinking about how we can protect the position going ahead in future. So some questions to think about in an audit um, include, look, what personal information does the APP entity deal with? What stuff does it actually handle? Uh, what personal information might it deal with in future? What's, what's on the horizon? How does it deal with the information? Where does it deal with the information? And where does it hold the information? How does the entity respond to data breaches? If, um, if your APP entity client confronts that question with a blank look, then my submission to you is that um, there is not a policy in place for how that client um, will be dealing with data breaches and that's a conversation for you to have promptly. 
Uh, we want to think about the policies in place to ensure security of data. So similarly to the bring, to the bring your own device point I made um, earlier, we want to make sure that the policies about data security, both physically and digitally, are really up to scratch. We want to make sure that the accuracy of the information held by the APP entity is right up there as well. Now this I'm quite keen on. Another strategy you can use to minimise data breaches is straight up to just comply with the APPs. Because <laughs> um, the APPs set out what an APP entity has to do. Now, I want to, without being light-hearted about it, I wanted to take you to the actual examples I'm, I'm, I'm relying on in making this suggestion. So if we think about APP 4.3, and APP 11.2, what those APPs, what those Australian privacy principles require an APP entity to do is to destroy or de-identify information if it's unsolicited or if it's no longer needed by the APP entity. So if your APP entity client is deleting all, or de-identifying all of the personal information that, it's, that it no longer needs, then that's a good way to clear the decks and make sure there's no backlog of personal information sitting in the room with the dodgy security door that doesn't work or sitting behind the very easily breached password. If we comply with APP 11, this requires reasonable steps to be taken to protect personal information. So if we're taking those reasonable steps, we're making sure that the risk of a data breach, the risk of misuse, the risk of interference, the risk of loss from unauthorised access, which is what a data breach is, as we learned earlier, is going to be minimised. And APP1, and forgive me for <laughs> being a bit trite with this, APP1 requires entities to, to take reasonable steps to make sure they're complying with the APPs. So to comply with APP1 is to comply with the APPs. So what I say is, if you're doing what APP 4.3 and 11.2 are telling you to do, then you as an APP entity or your client as an APP entity are taking effective steps towards minimising the likelihood of data breaches. What else can you do? Um, well, if you are the right sort of client for this kind of service, it may be time to pick up the privacy bat phone <laughs> and um, call an external service provider um, or, or to develop your own in-house capability with some, with some expertise on it. Um, and you can imagine the various scenarios that you or your APP entity client might um, think about doing so in. So the APP entity, you or your client, might have a really significant volume of personal information that they handle. Um, for some reason, the personal information they handle might have an elevated risk or elevated likelihood as well of serious harm. So, meaning that um, the eligible data breach issues are enlivened. What I should have said in there as well, but what I will say now, is that you or your APP entity client may have an elevated risk of serious harm that's really difficult to remediate. So it might be the sort of personal information that once out is out, meaning that that final remediation step to prevent an eligible data breach might not be available to your client due to the nature of um, her, his, its, their um, business or their enterprise. You might want to think about whether reputational harm is a big deal for you or your APP entity client. If it is, um, there might be reason to take a gold-plated approach to privacy. And perhaps finally, um, although we can think of other reasons to um, develop an expertise in privacy or, or engage an external expert, um, your APP entity client might be an easy target for external malevolence. So if, uh, <laughs> if your client's a juicy target for, for uh, hackers, then that might be a good reason for um, them to take the um, engagement in the privacy space, whether um, going in-house or hiring externally, very seriously indeed. So what did we just do? Just then, we looked at how we're going to re reduce the likelihood of data breaches. 
of what we're going to do now to sort of bring our discussion home. And I might have accidentally given you an early mark, which is heartbreaking because I love talking about privacy. Um, we're going to look at the final section of our talk about what happens if a breach occurs. So um, we've taken all our precautions, we've complied with the APPs, we've used our common sense, no one's left the briefcase on the train, uh, we've fixed the security door, uh, we've got all our passwords in, we've got you know, whatever the latest security software is all up and running, but somehow a data breach occurs. Now, the real cheat, the real secret is that a data breach is only eligible if it is not capable of remedy. So it could be the most dramatic, terrifying, awful, um, horrific data breach of all time. But if you can fix it, and fix it fast, then there's every chance there'll be no harm done. And the real difficulty, uh, and you'll have heard this from lawyers a thousand times, is that th there is no one-size-fits-all approach to um, dealing with a data breach. It's going to be a bespoke approach. But what the Commissioner has done and what I've cheekily adopted um, for today's discussion is set out um, some strategies that you or your APP entity client might like to use. And I, I set them out um, for you here and I think Alison might be in a position to provide you with a paper um, later on that sort of sets them out at more length. And I endorse them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, the um, providing them to you and endorsing them is um, is valuable to you. So, let's let's have a look at this framework because I think it's really useful, and this is kind of the heart of today's discussion. Because if you remember, what we've just spoken about is preventing the preventing the little goofs, preventing the preventable, um, or preventing the um, the vulnerability to external malevolent actors. Now we look at all right, it's happened. What are we going to do about it? Well, um, four steps. Step one is containment. What we want to do as soon as possible to prevent any further compromise, any further risk, is to contain the data breach. We want to stop the unauthorized practice, whatever it is. We want to get the records back. We want to fix up the IT systems so they're revoked. We want to make sure that Blogsy's security card that lets them into the building has its functionality change so that Blogsy can't use it again. We want to change the locks. We want to do whatever it is to address the weakness, to address the cause of the data breach. Now, at this containment stage, based on um, what's going on, what's found, or the nature of the information, it may be that that is when the APP entity decides the breach is eligible. And remember, as we discussed before, uh, it is that eligibility that requires notification of the breach to, um, to the commissioner um, and to the uh, individual identified. So we now do our assessment. We now say, all right, we've contained it, we've stopped it. Let's have a think about what actually happened. What precisely is the information that has been uh, misused, compromised, interfered with, etc. What is the information that is the subject of the data breach? What were the circumstances of the breach? How did it happen? How can we remedy the harm? We'll come to that. Um, and who are the people involved? Is it one person? 10, 100, 1,000, 10,000, more? Uh, we need to assess the breach. We need to figure out what is going on. Then we need to think about notification. Because remember, the obligation to notify the person and to notify the commissioner is an obligation if it is likely to result in serious harm. And we've said before, firstly, that we've got no case law on NDBs, so we've got no decision to turn to. Um, secondly, that we've got um, no, um, oh, my phone's ringing. How do I hang up on this? Let's try to figure it out. Yeah, I think we do it the old fashioned way. Sorry about that interruption. Ah, no, we don't. Let me hang up. There we go. That's done with that. No, it's not. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for this interruption, everyone. All right, 
Um, back we go. Uh, hello? Hopefully you can all hear me. Yes, fantastic, Alison. Thank you for letting me know. I've got a nice tone running in my ear and a, uh, a colleague I'll have to bark at when I go down the hall, but that's fine. Um, all right, uh, what do we have to do? Now, remember that the notification of uh, the commissioner or the notification of the relevant person uh, is required in the case of... Um, if the data breach, I'm sorry, I've got a tone bleeping in my ear. I'm just going to take off this headset and speak into the microphone. Um, <laughs> uh, the obligation to notify occurs if the breach is likely to result in serious harm. Um, so that is a, uh, an evaluation that you or your APP entity client needs to promptly attend to. And it's also worth bearing in mind that, that the notification itself can cause stress. So we want to make sure that we're not exacerbating any harm by going about the notification. So we want APP entities to engage with the notification with sensitivity and with compassion. So in doing so, um, there's a reflection to be made on the appropriateness of who gives and receives the notification and in what form. And sometimes that'll be a third party Sometimes that'll be a solicitor. Um, sometimes that'll be any sort of person who might, um, who might be engaged by you or the APP entity um, to give the notification. And then, uh, perhaps the most important um, step for going ahead, uh, we want to review how the breach occurred. What happened? Uh, what are we going to do about it to avoid similar stuff in future? How are we going to be better prepared? So. That four-step process, I think, is of value to APP entities, and it's one I, as I say, it's one I endorse for you. And that final point there, I'd like to linger on for a moment as well. If you as an APP entity are concerned about a data breach, or, or if one occurs, what the APP entity should remember is that it can and should take remedial action at any time to limit the damage. So we come to the closing comments and we may well be staring an early mark um, down the barrel. Um, sorry, sorry about that for anyone who wanted to talk um, longer on privacy and now it might also be a good time for you to think about any questions you might have. Uh, but I just wanted to close with a quick review of what we've, what we've talked about. So do you remember we kicked off with a discussion of the legislative framework? We talked about the APP regime we talked about personal information, we talked about organisations, we talked about small business exception, these sorts of things, and we concluded, I hope you'll agree, that there are a significant number of entities that are APP entities. And we found that APP entities have to comply with the APPs, and they also have to comply with the NDB, the Notifiable Data Breach Regime. And we spoke about a data breach, which is that loss of misuse of information, becoming an eligible data breach when it is likely to cause serious harm and when it is not remedied. We then took our next step um, and we looked at the macro-micro examples of how privacy is operating on the ground uh, and we saw that the macro data uh, saw a couple of hundred um, notifiable data breaches, uh, sorry, eligible data breaches for the recent quarter and that a number of those were from human error and that some of those were, sorry, a greater proportion of those were from external malevolence. And we also took a ride through some of the micro examples there, trying to um, get on top of what decisions the commissioner had handed down in the past. And you might remember we extracted some themes from that. We then moved on to our discussion of how to minimise a data breach. Uh, and then we talked about, despite our minimisation steps, what might be done in the case of a data breach happening. So my hope is that um, despite <laughs> some of it being a little bit boring and despite um, uh, being interrupted by a phone call from a colleague down the hall who then just walked along to bang on the window of my office, uh, despite that interruption, I hope there's been some value for you. And if you've got any questions, please um, direct them to Alison. And thank you very much for your attention as well.
clearly and well explained as to how it applies and who it applies to. Great presentation. Oh, thank you, William. Um, uh, I suppose your question is, how did I get so interested in privacy? And the answer is, it's fascinating. Um, <laughs> I'm being silly, of course. William, really grateful for that generous comment. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, um, Amber, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you the typical lawyer's answer of it depends. Um, it's a case by case basis. Thank you, James. And Grant has asked, what are Oh, yeah, Grant, there's sort of two answers to this. Um, how seriously should the penalties be taken? Well, um, I can't comment on the financial position of um, you as an APP entity or your APP entity's clients, um, but certainly the um, monetary awards coming out from the commissioner are not huge, despite the fact that there is latitude for that stuff to get a lot bigger. What I'd invite you to consider, Grant, though, is um, the reputational element. So there may be um, advisory firms or there may be community organisations or there may be um, charities or NFPs um, that um, want to ensure that they don't have a set of privacy proceedings on the books anywhere that someone can um, hop onto a search engine and promptly find. So on the one hand, the... Um, monetary risk is not compelling, but the reputational risk is there. The other element is that, um, and I'd love to bang on about it longer, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. The facts that give rise to APP proceedings, as I, as I hope I banged on about a little bit during the talk, can found other sets of proceedings. And, I, and I'm particularly thinking of IV and IW, that's just the first case my mind comes to. That strikes me as a reasonably clear set of facts that could lead to defamation proceedings. And there may well have been defamation proceedings there, but um, the low monetary element, you should take as seriously or unseriously as you would like, but I'd invite you to take that reputational risk and that possibility of other proceedings very seriously indeed.